morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Amy Place and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wasa has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are in an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have a few announcements I want to draw your attention to. They're on the yellow pages in your order of worship. All ages worship. Our children and youth RE programs will not meet this morning. Children and youth are invited to join their families for our all ages, all souls day service. Be sure to check out the soul work supplies, coloring and activity sheets, fidgets, etc., at the back of the sanctuary to use during service. Both Children's Chapel and Connections Cafe will be back next Sunday, November 5th. Speaking of next Sunday, November 5th, we will be having a potluck lunch next Sunday at 11.30 a.m. Please join us in this heartwarming tradition that embodies the spirit of unity and fellowship at our Universalist Unitarian Church. You are encouraged to bring comfort foods. Whether you arrive with a dish to share or simply with an open heart, all are welcome to this inclusive gathering. And lastly, the Wausau Bird Club. It meets the first Monday of every month, indoors here at UU Wausau during late fall and winter, outdoors in the spring and summer. Meetings are free and open to the public, and everyone is welcome to join. As we begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting, also found in your order of worship. As we kindle this flame, we honor and remember those who have passed into the mystery. Their brightness lives on in our vision. Their courage lives on in our commitments and their love continues to bless the world through us. Please rise in body or spirit for our opening hymn, number 86, Blessed Spirit of My Life.
morning, I'd like to share with you a story about death and remembrance. It's called The Memory Tree. It was written and illustrated by Britta Teckentrup, and it was published by Orchard Books. There once was a fox who lived with all the other animals in the forest. Fox had lived a long and happy life, but now he was tired. Very slowly, Fox made his way to his favorite spot in the clearing. He looked at his beloved forest one last time and laid down. Fox closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and died. Everything around Fox was still and peaceful. Snow began to fall, gently covering him in a soft blanket. Owl had watched Fox from the top of his tree. He flew down and landed next to his friend. Owl was very sad. He had known Fox for a very long time, but Owl knew the time had come for his friend to leave. One by one, Fox's friends came to the clearing. First squirrel and weasel, then bear, deer, and bird, and finally rabbit, mouse, and others came to sit by Fox. Fox had been loved by everyone. He had been a kind and caring person, or fox. No one could imagine life in the forest without him. The animals sat in silence for a very long time. Owl was the first to speak. He smiled warmly and said, I remember when Fox and I were very young. Every autumn we raced to see who could catch the most falling leaves. The other animals remembered and smiled. Mouse said softly, I remember how much Fox loved the sunset. He always sat in the exact same spot. The animals remembered. Many of them had joined Fox watching the sun go down. It was a happy memory, and their sad hearts filled with a little warmth. Bear remembered how Fox had looked after his cubs one spring. Rabbit smiled when she told the story of how Fox played tag with her in the tall grass. Squirrel talked about Fox helping him dig up buried nuts in the deep snow last winter. One by one, the animals remembered their favorite stories about Fox. Fox had touched the lives of all the animals in the forest with his warmth and kindness, and they all smiled, remembering. While the animals talked, a little orange plant grew out of the snow where Fox was lying, small and delicate at first and hardly noticeable. The plant grew bigger, stronger, and more beautiful with each story. The animals talked about Fox through the night, and in the morning, the little plant had grown into a small tree. The animals saw the tree and knew that Fox was still a part of them. During the next days and weeks and months, the animals remembered many, many more stories about Fox. Their heavy hearts began to feel just a little bit lighter. And the more they remembered, the more the tree grew, higher and higher, more and more beautiful until it was the tallest tree in the forest, a tree made of memories and full of love. Fox's tree was big and strong enough to shelter all the animals. It was always buzzing with life. The birds built their nests among the leaves. Owl raised his grand chicks on the branches. Squirrel found a cozy home in the trunk. And bear, deer, and rabbit slept in its shade. The tree gave strength to everyone who had loved Fox. And so, Fox lived on in their hearts forever. And that is our story for today. This morning, we're worshiping as a community of all ages, so I'm going to invite you to sing our children's song to bless those gathering here and those gathering online. The words are printed in your order of worship.
The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. You can place a gift in the basket as it passes by. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. I'd like to invite you into a spirit of prayer and meditation. I want to encourage you to first pray with your body. Start by getting yourself comfortable on crossing your feet, putting them both flat on the ground. If you're comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes. As we relax into this position, move your attention to the top of your head. Note the movement of air, any running thoughts. As you move your attention downwards, focus it on your jaw and let any tension out. Take a relaxing breath and feel its movement. Take a deep, full breath into the top of your chest and slow out. Take another one deep and full into your stomach. Slow out. Let us pray. O spirit of healing, when we came into worship, we set our burdens at the door. And there's a pile out there tall enough to touch the sky. We see how many lives are imprisoned by power, hate, and greed. We see how many of us live with painful joints and aching heads and crushing tiredness enough to keep us all in bed. We see stacks of grudges, mountains of unhappiness, hills of addiction and regret. But here, 
with all those burdens, with headlines like ours, with haunting images and cries. We remember the souls whose gifts of love and life have given hope to us and others. Hope even when all seems lost. Help us trust that we are called to love each other and love the world you brought us to. Help us a life of rebirth and renewal. Help us to claim your promises of healing, justice, and mercy. Help us listen with new ears. Help us forgive. Help us heal. Help us serve and be served. And now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for hymn number 83, Winds Be Still.
all are welcome to come up in light as I go through this liturgy here. This morning, we honor the memory of our church members who've died in this past year. Three people in particular, Ali M. Kyler, Thomas G. Grimes, and just yesterday afternoon, Griff Matthews died. It is said that the tradition of lighting candles for the dead dates to the fourth century, when ancient people would light candles for 40 days in honor of the departed. Jews customarily light a candle on the anniversary of someone's death, which is prayed over and left burning for 24 hours. The Paschal candle is lit every Easter. Advent candles are lit each Sunday in the weeks before Christmas. Candlelight vigils follow national tragedies and eternal flames burn in almost every country and every state in our nation to honor victims of war and violence and to serve as a reminder of the sacredness of human life. Everyone here has or will lose someone close to them. And so I invite everyone who would like to come forward and light a candle in honor of someone. Please come forward now if you haven't already.
Our reading this morning is a poem entitled The Present by Billy Collins. And the poet writes, much has been said about being in the present. It's the place to be, according to the gurus, like the latest club on the downtown scene, but no one, it seems, is able to give you directions. It doesn't seem desirable or even possible to wake up every morning and begin leaping from one second into the next until you fall exhausted back into bed. Plus, there'd be no past with so many scenes to savor and regret and no future, the place you will die, but not before flying around with a jetpack. The trouble with the present is that it's always in the state of vanishing. Take the second it takes to end this sentence with a period. It's already gone. What about the moment that exists between banging your thumb with a hammer and realizing that you are in a whole lot of pain? What about the one that occurs after you hear the punchline, but right before you get the joke? Is that where the wise men want us to live? And that intervening tick, the tiny slot that occurs after you have spent hours searching downtown for that new club, and just before you give up and head back home. Therein ends our reading.
Back when I was in fifth grade, my teacher greeted us one morning with terrible news. One of our fellow students, a bright girl named Hillary, had been in a car accident with her dad and brothers. The kids had managed to survive with just cuts and bruises, but their dad had died. I was just nine or ten, and back then the only parents I knew who died were in books and on TV. But it never occurred to me until that moment that they died in real life. My teacher was sensitive to the moment, and so she let us ask questions. And then she brought out a jar of mustard seeds and told us that these tiny seeds symbolize a belief that even when we're brokenhearted, even when someone we love dies, that hope is never lost. And so for the next 10 or so days while Hillary was away from school, the teacher left out a jar of mustard seeds. And if we liked, we could stop by it on our way to class and we would tape a mustard seed to our shirt for Hillary and for her family. Now, I don't think there was a kid in the whole of fifth grade that didn't stop by the jar for a seed every morning. And so when Hillary came back, we presented her with a jar filled with the seeds that we had all worn and a stack of condolences written by almost every person in the school. I think about this every time I see the phrase, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed cross-stitched into a pillow at ye oldie country store. It reminds me that just because consumerism has tried to render the phrase from St. Matthew cliché, it can't render it meaningless. How one holds on to hope and tragedy is a mystery, but it happens. Sometimes others might have to hold our hope for us. But every day this mystery happens. Mysteries that aren't problems to be solved, but experiences we're invited to enter. I've been thinking these past few weeks about what we as humans have in common. As far as I can tell, it's certainly not politics. It's not our skin color. It's not our language. It's not music. It's not art. It's not Jesus. It's not Buddha. It's not the Quran. It's not the Rig Veda. So far as I can tell, what unites us is birth and death. And many of us have come here today with hearts heavy with the loss of someone dear. And this church has been honoring this grief for centuries. All Souls Day is set aside to remember the people whose life and whose living touched our own. People like Hillary's dad. People who died recently or long ago but that our eyes still sting with the grief of it. And like you, I stand here today and grieve my own dead, those people who I loved, who I lost to cancer and old age and suicide and accidents and COVID. And here in this church, we mark the occasion to be reminded that without the dead, not a one of us would be sitting here. This church wouldn't exist at all. As I was writing this sermon, a memory flooded my mind, a memory of having one of my monthly lunches with Elnora Beekler and Margaret Karspecken back when they were still alive. Now, one of the things Elnora liked to tell me was that why she chose to come to church Sunday in, Sunday out, tough as it was for her, was because whenever she was in this sanctuary, she would remember all the people who used to be here all her friends who had died over the 70 years of membership here, her husband, her grandson. And Elnora and Margaret, they both warned me. They said, Brian, the longer you live, death will start to feel like a thief, a thief that gets better at their job as every year goes by. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is how grief is a complicated thing like how difficult it can be to grieve a parent you loved, but a parent who was also a little bit shabby at parenting, or how difficult it can be to grieve someone 
who you didn't treat as good as you should have, or to grieve someone who just a few days ago you were gossiping about. One of the odd things about the fabric of our hearts is that sometimes they get snagged on the rough sides of people. And the opposite of this is true as well, that other people, the fabric of their hearts, get snagged on the jagged sides of us, the selfish sides, the addicted sides, the dishonest sides. Despite this, one of our faith's primary beliefs is that every one of us, every one of you is a personification of humanity. And in every one of us, that personification is unique to you and to you alone. In a play of William Alfred's called Agamemnon, one of the characters says this, and I quote, it is a fearful thing to love what death can touch. Now this is a very clever short line, but it's a short way of saying that the people that we have loved have become in some way an extension of ourselves. In some ways, the people we love, they shape the way that we understand ourselves. Now, there are some people in my life, and maybe there are some people in yours, who are sort of like an alter ego. They have this power to complete some of my incompleteness. But it's this power some people have, you can call it love, you can call it friendship, that when they leave, something in us leaves too. And it's into those spaces that grief wells up. What I want to say about grief is that for me, it has the power to bring the realization that there are no substitutes. And because of this, it frees us to be simply human rather than a complicated adult with far too many opinions, with way too little sympathy, at least for a while. In some ways, grief has the power to set us free like we're children again. Back when a mustard seed taped to your shirt was like taping hope itself to your chest. One of the startling things about death for me is that it clarifies every time. I could be neck deep in tasks, I can be up to my ears and all my grievances, but then I get a call that someone I love has died or someone in this church has died, and the clouds part in an instant, and I see with crystal clarity what does and doesn't need done. And I know this happens because the opposite is often the case. Parts of me and maybe parts of you walk through life without knowing where you've been until you've left. Because much of the time, I have to look back five days later or 20 days later, or five years later, just to see where I've been. But never in death. I always know right where I am. I often tell people that I didn't become a minister in any real sense until I conducted my first funeral. And so in the years since, of all the things I'm called to do, there is absolutely nothing more important, nothing that has proved to be of greater value to me than when people call on me in times of loss. And in my limited understanding of why this is the case, all I can say is that it's in those moments that the veil between here and the veil between the heart of God is at its thinnest. And because God is love, the love we share here on earth, it becomes that connective tissue that unites us with everyone who loved us. And I don't know, Maybe after we die, we get to be the ancestors of the generations that follow. Or maybe there's an afterlife. Or maybe there's something like a training ground in the kids' movie Soul, where we get to see them off when they're born, and we get to welcome them home whenever they die. Which leads me to my next topic. That's a bit of wisdom I learned from my dear grandmother, Millie Lou, who many of you have heard me talk about over the years. Now, my grandmother lives very large in my heart. I lived with her for a time. And she led a difficult life by anyone's standards. She barely finished middle school. All of her jobs were either in factories or what we now call the service industry. Much of the food she ate, she grew herself 
or she made because it was game caught by one of my grandfathers when they went out hunting or fishing. She lost homes, she lost her savings, she buried her parents, siblings, and a husband all before she was 40 years old. She was married three times. Her first marriage was filled with violence. Her second ended in tragedy, and her third was snuffed out by circumstances way too complicated to summarize. What my grandmother never seemed to question was that life, by definition, is a struggle. A struggle with suffering its frequent cost and death its final price. But alongside this belief of hers was an unwavering faith that people tend to rise in response to tragedy. And she's right. Just look at all those anonymous people who donate to GoFundMe pages whenever tragedy strikes someone in this community. And my wife, who's a school teacher here locally, tells me that the staff at some of the schools in Wausau do something very similar. They collect funds so that when a teacher or a staff member falls on hard times, they get in the mail a card filled with messages of hope and a bit of money to ease all the costs of burden. Whenever my wife told me about this, I remembered a story one of you, I can't remember who, shared with me about bodhisattvas. The best way I can think to summarize the story is like this. In response to the reality of suffering, Buddhism developed two roads. The first road is the narrow road, holding to the extinction of desire as a direct ticket to heaven, which they call nirvana. The other proposed a very different ideal, the bodhisattvas, one who would return lifetime after lifetime until no other creature remained unenlightened until all creatures get a ticket to heaven. And so what these bodhisattvas do is they reject the comforts of nirvana until all suffering, not just their suffering, is removed from human life. And so this school of Buddhism holds that none of us lives unto ourselves alone. We share one another's suffering and pain. And so long as others suffer, we too must suffer with and for them. And it's an ancient story that shows us that as long as others suffer, people will rise. If there's a word for this, one of the candidates for it must be love. And I believe that it's for this that we're gathered here today. To be reminded that real love lets go of the narrative of reward and punishment all those messages we hear in newspapers and experience in far too many churches. Love frees us from the prison of thinking that to be accepted we have to believe and behave a right way, or love a right way, or vote a right way, or have the right lifestyle or political affiliation. A love that frees us from the lie that we are all powerful beings who can perform ourselves into perfection. Very often, the people we mourn the most, they have a way of helping us believe that our failings are never as powerful as grace and mercy. And there's this age-old belief in universalism that says that only unspent love dies when we die. And unspent love only dies because of fear. And so then the question remains, what does it mean to live without fear? Notice I'm not saying to live without limitations or to live without pain or to live without suffering or death. Not even without our tendency to muck things up, our own or other people's, but to live in communion. And if I'm being honest, I struggle to answer how to live without fear and sadness when so many people are sad and fearful. But the thing is, is life is not a competition. Fear and pain and sadness, you can never measure them with a stick. Your sorrows are real. The sorrows of others is real. Death is real, but so is love. Sorrow and love, perhaps they've always mingled. 
what I know, what I've seen embodied in the people I love, by the people I serve, is that in loss, there is always love. In grief, there is always love. And what I believe is that the people we miss the most in their love, in their loss, these people have shown us the face of God. They show us that even when we're lost or brokenhearted, that hope never dies, that love never dies. Please rise now and join in singing our closing hymn, number 331, Life is the Greatest Gift of All. I invite you to reach out and take the hand of someone nearby. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude.